Welcome to Reveal Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Read back through where we were last week into the new section we're going to talk about today, Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll start over in, uh, let's start in verse 7 of chapter 1, and we'll read forward to where we're going to be this morning, just to put things in context. And it reads like this, starting in verse 7 of chapter 1, it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. Father God, this morning I pray that we have honored You with a reading of Your Word. Take that Word, make it alive in our hearts that we may honor You with our lives in the days ahead. This we pray in the name of Your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, or should I say months, as we have been uh, delving through the book of Ephesians, you know, we talked about the author who was Paul. We talked about the churches because it was a circular letter. It was sent to several churches, and those churches were the seven churches in the book of Revelation that we studied. If you remember each church, and we looked at the ending of those churches As we have been going through Ephesians now, we're looking at the beginning or the parts where he was giving them explanation how not to end up like we talked about in the book of of Revelation when we looked at those churches. As we started in the book of Ephesians, you know, we we started off with the praise and the glory that he was giving to God. And then he moved directly into that section in verse 3 where he started talking about blessing God. And he was just so wound up in what God had done in his life that he wrote the longest sentence in the New Testament, actually the longest sentence in the Bible in the Greek, and it starts in verse 3 and it ends in verse 14 with no punctuation whatsoever. I dare say you'd have a difficult time reading it from start to finish without stopping to breathe somewhere. But he got so absolutely wound up in what God had done for him in his life that he couldn't help but pour it out and he couldn't find a stopping point. Because it was nowhere to pause. It was just all so exciting. And, and he started off talking about the blessings on, in Jesus and what Jesus had done. He moved through the way salvation works. He moved through all those things. If you remember, we talked about the doctrine of election back in verses 3 and 4. Uh, we moved over to, to the doctrine of, of redemption that we talked about last week. But as we moved through those, a question happened to come to mind. Because I know it did for me. As I think about it, as I think about God choosing me before eternity, future, He chose me in eternity past. And and He chose to redeem me through the very death, the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The question that arose in my mind is, why? Why would God choose to put together a plan that included me? Why would He do that for me? What was the purpose? God doesn't do anything whimsical. He doesn't do anything for the sake of doing it. It all has a plan. Really knit together plan that is so neat. 
But why did he save us? You see, so many churches today, the pastor stands in the pulpit on Sunday morning and he looks at the congregation and he tells them this. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be prosperous. If bad things are happening in your life, it's because you're not close enough to God. If you're sad, it's because you don't understand who God is. If you're struggling in your life, it's because you haven't taken a hold of the blessings that God's given you. You need to name it and you need to proclaim it and it's all yours. You just need to reach out and grab it. It's great speech. It's a waste of an hour because it's a lie. The reason God saved you has absolutely nothing to do with you. Your being saved wasn't your choice. It was God's choice. The way he chose to do it was his choice through his son, Jesus Christ. And he didn't save you for your good. He saved you for himself. You see, he originally created you to be his glory. And because of man's sin, we no longer were. And he found a way to bring us back to the point that we could be his glory yet again. Today, we're going to look at a brief passage, verses 11 and 12. And we're going to talk about why God did what he did. So with, if you would, let's look at God's provision. God's provision for us in verse 11. And it's in two words. The two words that start off verse 11. For some of you, it may not be in your verse 11. It may be the end of verse 12. It better fits in the translation of verse 11. Remember, there were no periods. There were no commas. There were no exclamation points. They all ran together. And verse 11 should start off like this. It should say, in him or in whom. I think maybe the King James may say, in whom. You have to stop. You have to pause. You say, he was the in him. Then him refers back to that beautiful verse of chapter 10, when in chapter 10 it says that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. How many times have we heard Paul use in him, in Christ, in whom already? We're only 11 verses in, and he's making this point multiple times that everything about us, who we are, who we are to be, is in something, in someone. And that in is in Christ. You see, in is a positional word. We forget sometimes That our salvation is positional. We are set in a particular position because God chose to do that for us. See, the end being a positional word, it's when you are in something, you are in a specific place or you're in a specific position. You may call someone sometimes. You say, hey, where are you? You say, oh, we're in Wilmington or we're in Wallace. Or you may say to someone, what? What, uh, where are you planning on going? Say, we're planning on going to a certain place. And what they're saying is they're planning on positioning themselves in a certain place. And see, when it talks about being in Him, you should look at it positionally. Positionally, once you are saved, you are put in Christ. See, if you really understood that you were put in Christ, you would understand that your position was fixed before eternity began for us. In eternity past, God fixed your position in His Son, Jesus Christ. That should make you want to jump out of your pew and run around the building. Because how precious is Jesus to God? Pretty precious. His only begotten Son, the only one I know in the Bible He calls His beloved. His ever so loved. And God chose before you were born to place you positionally in Christ. 
You see, the in him refers back to that in Christ there in 10. And it also brings to mind a couple of other things for me. See, how do we get to be in Christ? You know, over in the book of Romans, today you're going to have to turn quick. We're short on time, so I may start without you. Just catch up. But over in the book of Romans, chapter 6, is a beautiful picture of what it means to be in Christ. And it reads like this. It says, What shall we say then? Starting in verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many as were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also. So he's moved from what Jesus did. He says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore. Understanding all that, he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Do you see what he's saying? If you understand that the day that Christ was nailed to the cross, somehow in God's mind, he plucked you out of eternity future. He drug you to a hill called Mount Calvary and he nailed you to the cross with his son. And when his son died, you died. And when his son was placed in the ground, you were placed in the ground. And when he rose three days later, you rose. You were no longer dead to sin. You are placed in the man who hung upon a cross for your sins. And assuredly as he lives free from sin, so should you. He says that you are no longer that old man. You are the new man. He tells tells us in verse 1 and 2, we were sin. He tells us in 3, we were baptized in Christ. Not water baptism, but baptized in his death. He says in verse 4, we were raised from the dead. Life of sin. We were raised out of that life of sin and we raised to a life in Christ, and he calls it a new life. He says in 5 through 11, as he goes through and he reiterates, he says, we were dead to sin and alive to God, and we were because of Christ, in being in Christ, we're now alive before God. He goes on in 12 through 14, and he says, you're no longer a slave to sin. So you're under this thing called Grace. A lot of people have taken that word grace and they've turned it into an acrostic and they say this, God's redemption at Christ's expense. 
See, it's God giving you what you don't deserve because he chooses to. He chooses to take a wretched man such as myself and cover me in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and make me no longer the old man, no longer the old man bound to sin, no longer the old man that desires sin more than I desire God. He decides to pick me up from that place and set me, set me in his son. And now when God looks down from heaven at me, he no longer sees the sinful Roger. He sees the Roger that's in Christ. He sees the new man. And the new man is bound up in Christ just as much as the old man was bound up in sin. And you see it's in him that's God's provision. But he moves on there in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1. And the next thing he gives us is his plan. He says his provision there was the in him. But he goes on to say we also have obtained an inheritance. And this is God's plan through your salvation or for your salvation. You see that Greek word there that he uses for inheritance is a very neat, neat word. It's kleruo. Kleruo is the word and it means this. It means to a lot. Or to an assign something. It's kind of like a privilege. It's something that's allotted or assigned. And it's kind of neat because the Greek takes an actual word that is that we break out into a phrase. We break out this, we have obtained an inheritance or obtained an inheritance that we write out in multiple words. But the Greek uses one beautiful word for all of that that's broken down into those, those separate words. And that word's a little lengthy, but it's, Ekleruthamen. You may think there's not much there to it that means much to me. And I'm going to take you back to your, your uh, English here for just a minute. And trust me, this took longer to figure out than it did for me to prepare the entire sermon. But it's important. This term, this actual term in the Greek, is what they call an aorist passive indicative. How many of you remember that from school? <laughs> yeah, me neither. I had to study a little bit. Why is it important? The aorist part, the aorist part of it means that it's an act that happened in the past. Happened in the past. What does it say? We have obtained. Not we are going to obtain, but we have attained. Why is that important? If I were to tell you that no matter what you did to me from now on, that one day I'm going to give you a million dollars. Would you say that you were going to obtain it or you have obtained it? Because I told you that. See, you would say, because knowing me and knowing I'm a man, and know there's a real good chance I'd lie to you, because I'm a man, you would say, I'm going to obtain it. But if God looks at you and says, this blessing is yours, guess what? You've already been given that. He's not going to back up and punt. He's not going to change his mind. He's already given it to you. So it's important to, stand it, to understand it in the aorist tense. It's an act that's already happened. Then that passive part, that passive part, the middle part, that's actually talking about bestowing an object. It's a passive part that talks about bestowing the object. The object that is going to be bestowed upon us is an inheritance. And the object of the bestowing is us. So he says here that, have means done in the past. 
The we have means it's been done in the past to us. Who's the us? Those who live the life of a new man because they've been set in Jesus Christ. Because they're no longer a bondage slave to sin, they're now wrapped up in Jesus. And because you're wrapped up in Jesus, it tells us in the Word, all that is His is ours. So from eternity past, we, the object of the inheritance, have been given that inheritance already. So he's saying that from the past, being the heiress part, the passive part being that the object is bestowed upon us, but then there's that indicative that's the stamp of approval for the Greeks upon all things. And when they put it in an indicative tense, that means it is a fact. They state the fact of our inheritance just like they state the fact of our salvation being through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Have you ever thought that your inheritance was God, from God was as, as an assured thing as your salvation was in Jesus Christ? See, what the Greeks say when they write that phrase is just as assuredly as Jesus died for your sins, you're saved. And when they write this text, they say just as assuredly as God said it's yours, it's yours. How many of you can open your checkbook and prove that God has given you an inheritance? See, we immediately think about our money because we think about inheritance being when someone passes away and they leave to us that which they had. What is our inheritance? We definitely don't have time to talk about that today, but I'll give you a brief snippet. Maybe we'll do it next week. Our inheritance is every blessing God ever promised, every promise he ever made in Scripture is your inheritance. Have you ever thought that everything he said as a promise was yours? Your inheritance is every promise God has ever made. Maybe next week we'll dive into that. But that's our inheritance. You see, that inheritance, though, can be two ways. Because it's Aaron's uh, passive indicative, it can be interpreted two different ways. The first way that it can be interpreted is that we are Christ's inheritance. You can look at it and it says where. It says that we have obtained an inheritance. That word have could have actually been translated made. It said we were made an inheritance. If we look at it from that angle, it's kind of interesting. Have you ever thought about being an inheritance to Christ? That Christ inherited you when he died upon a cross? Not real sure. I feel pretty sure he got the bad end of the deal. (laughs) I know he did when it came to me, but it says that we could have been his inheritance. How do I know that? Flip back to John real fast, and I'm just going to read these real quick. We won't make a whole lot of discussion about it, but John chapter 6. I'll try to keep all these references in John so that you can flip quickly through them. John chapter 6, verse 35, it says this, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. There's a promise, one of those promises that were made. And it goes on to say, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Here's the inheritance. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. That's a promise of our inheritance to God. Look over chapter 10 with me. Just flip to chapter 10 real fast. In chapter 10, verse 25, it says this, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of 
me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, another promise, and they shall never perish, another promise. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. See, we're an inheritance to Christ. Look at verse 17 with me while you're right there. 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 1. This is when Christ is praying. He says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that, you may know, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Another promise, and within that promise is our inheritance to Christ. So we could be an inheritance to Christ, but also that term, the way it's laid out in the Greek back in Ephesians, it says, in Him also we have obtained an inheritance. It means that we were given an inheritance. So it's kind of a twofold statement. We were given an inheritance. We who believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior are guaranteed an inheritance. We're guaranteed. We're guaranteed because God said it. Look with me at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. Or chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 1. Look at chapter 1 with me. Better get in 1 Peter, not 2 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. And what is this inheritance? It's incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. See, this inheritance that He's promised us is already stored away, some of which we receive now in promises. But He tells us that this inheritance is uncorruptible. It does not tarnish. It does not fade. There is nothing that can take it away. And it awaits to be revealed in its fullness at the coming of Jesus Christ to get his own. You have a small portion of that inheritance today that you utilize, that God blesses you with. But what awaits you on the other side of glory is unfathomable. You think about the inheritance that we have because of Jesus. For you see, by God's mercy, we're His children. By God's mercy, He chose us. We have a living hope because of Christ's resurrection. Our inheritance is incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away. Our inheritance is secure. It's secure because of God's power, it tells us in 1 Peter. It's given through faith. And it's given unto salvation. It's through faith. It's through belief in Jesus that this inheritance is gained. And we're secure in our salvation. We're secure in our inheritance because we're secure in Christ. So that's God's plan. Let's look at God's providence back in Ephesians. Back in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. 
His providence. His providence says this, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined. Predestined. This is a Greek word, proadzio, proadzio, which means to limit in advance or, or to determine before time. So it's a limiting factor before time or it's something that's given before time. It works hand in hand. It's kind of serendipity of that election that we studied back in verses 4 through 6. See, because in 4 through 6, we understood that God chose us to be saved before the foundation of the earth. It states that plainly. Before the foundation of the earth, He chose us. He did this out of His own counsel, out of His own will. He did this so that we may be holy and blameless, it tells us in the very first part of Ephesians, that we should be holy and blameless. He adopted us to be His children, and He did that through His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. That was His plan, was through Jesus Christ to adopt us into the family that we may gain the inheritance that we may be gloryful and a blessing to Him in this world. That's the plan. He did this for His own praise, for for His own glory. That was why He did it. He did this by His own counsel of His own will. It says, as you read on, it says He's predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So the thing to understand about His providence in our life is that providence is given to us by His own will, His own choosing. And it's done for His own purpose. We're not set here so that God can do things to make our life comfortable. We're not set here in this earth and saved by God so that we can be happy. Does God want you to be happy? Yes. Does God want to be glorified? Yes. If He chooses between the two, do you care to guess which He'll choose? His glorification. How do I know that? Read the book of Job. Read the book of Job. There was nothing comfortable about Job's life, but who was glorified through what happened in Job's life? God. And ultimately, if you're one of his children, if you know that your destiny is the inheritance of all that God has, why wouldn't you want your life here on this earth to be glorifying to him? What's a little pain here for an eternity in the presence of your Savior, Jesus Christ? What's a little struggle in your life to be able to bow at the feet of your precious Savior, and lay those crowns of your works at His feet? What's a little suffering in this life to be able to spend eternity in the presence of the one who gave it all upon a cross for your sins? You see, we also see in this God's power in verse 11. Fourth thing we see is His power. It says He, the purpose of Him who works. Him who works. That word used there for works is energeho. Energeho is kind of the word there that's used. It's the word where we get our words, English words, energetic or, or energize or energy. It actually means to be active or to be mighty in. To be mighty in. Have you ever thought about this God of all creation worked in the creation of our world? And he created this world and he set it in motion. He didn't step out one day from his throne and say, huh like to create a world, I wonder how I'm going to go about doing that. And he brings together the best carpenters and the best diggers, and he talks to them about it. No. God decided he wanted to create a world, and guess what he did? He spoke that into existence. He did it through his power. The beautiful news is, he didn't leave that world to its power. His power is still present. His power is still working in that world. He still spins it on its axis on a daily basis. He still causes the the sun to rise and to set. He still causes causes the rain to fall. 
and the vegetation to grow and the food that we partake of is all controlled by God through His nature. See, God worked out our salvation in much the same way. The same way He created this world we live in, He created for us the plan of our salvation. See, He planned before time began that you one day would know His Son, Jesus Christ. You may be sitting here this morning and say, you know, I never have really come to know that man, Jesus. I know about him, but I've really never come to know him. You may be here today, hearing this message, for the sole purpose of your heart being stirred in such a way you realize that you're a sinner and that your destiny is a place called hell, just as real as heaven is a place called hell. And today, you may realize that that's your destiny. I tell you this, my friend, there's only one way to avoid that destiny, and that's through the power of God that shows up in His Son, Jesus Christ, the one who died upon a cross for your sins, who gave everything that you may live. And see, God, just as assured as He made this world, and He set it in motion, He stayed with it, He stays with us even through our salvation. See, He gives you the faith to believe in that death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. And he tells us that what he's begun in us, he doesn't walk away from. One of my favorite passages, the book of Philippians. Just flip over to the very next book. The book of Philippians, chapter 1. Right at the very beginning of the book of Philippians. In verse 3 he says this, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. This is as Paul was writing to the... Philippian church, he says, I thank God for you. And he says, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing. Here's the confident statement, the factual statement that Paul makes about this church and about every Christian. He says that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Have you ever struggled in your Christian walk? Understand you are not alone. God did not set you on the path of being a Christian and leave you to yourself. That work He began in you the day that you come to understand that Jesus Christ was your Lord and Savior and the only way that you could be saved of your sin, the day that you came to understand that through the faith given to you by God, God has walked with you since that day in the form of His Holy Spirit. And as your life has gone good and bad in your Christian walk, He has worked through those situations, through His Holy Spirit, in your life to perfect you. Perfect you. That one day as this sanctification takes care of place in your life, one day you'll be glorified. Not for yourself, but to show who God really is. See, when you have these struggles in your life and you think you're all alone, just reach out and take God's hand. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. And no matter what happens in your life, no matter the struggle that you have, He is working even through that struggle to glorify Himself. That's why Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is my gain. To stay here on this earth and live through those struggles is Christ. But God, if you take me home, That'll be my gain. What an awesome thought. But not only did he show us his power, but he showed us his purpose. Verse 12. And I know we're after time. Just bear with me a few more minutes. He says in verse 12, as we read, I'll start in verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, 
being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we, in some translations it may say, who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. But if you actually read it in the Greek, it says that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. It actually is turned around in the King James. I believe that's when they got in the correct order in there. It says this, that we should be to the praise of his glory. Why did God save us? Paul says it so plain and so clear right there. He says, knowing all these things, knowing God chose you, knowing God works through his son, Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection works through the Holy Spirit to give you power. Works through all those things to sanctify you. Blesses you. Has an inheritance lined up for you. Has all those things in place for you. He did all of that that we, that we, his children, should be to the praise of his glory. Everything that happens in our life should be his, for his glory. We are to live a life in Christ that restores the image of how man was originally made. Do you remember how man was originally made? If you're reading through the Bible, hopefully you've gotten this far. Genesis chapter 1. Nobody laughs, so nobody must be reading through the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says this, Then God said, Let us, talking about the Trinity, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. How was man originally created? In the image of God. Look around. Does anybody here look like the image of God? Do you know why? Because man chose to sin. Sin against the holy God. Man chose to take the apple, so to speak, metaphorically. And partake of that sin because man wanted sin more than he wanted to be the glorification, the image of God. So it says that we were made in that image. We were to have dominion. We were to take care of the garden. We were to be fruitful. We were to multiply. But most importantly, we were to communicate the attributes of God. Remember the attributes of God. His love, His mercy, His grace, His holiness. We were to communicate all of those things through our lives because we were made in that same image that contains those attributes. I would dare say if you looked at the mirror, your face in the mirror, you would dare say that most of those attributes do not dwell within you without some struggle. Left to ourselves, we don't want to be holy. Left to ourselves, we don't want to be loving. Left to ourselves, we don't want to be kind. But God tells us we were created in His image, and those are the things of His image. That's why when you were saved, you put off the old man. And back in Ephesians 4, matter of fact, Ephesians 4 it says this, This I say therefore, starting in verse 17, of Ephesians 4. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, talking about the lost, in the fertility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to the lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. See how he runs through this list of what man looks like without God? Thank goodness he doesn't stop there. He goes on to verse 20. He says, But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him 
and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Verse 22 starts the truth that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Have you ever thought that life before you came to know Jesus is an old man? It's an old man. It's an old man that is filled full of foul language and lust of the world and and delights in those lusts and sinful things and pridefulness. That old man is the man that was filled with all that hatred, all that detesting of God, all that pridefulness. It was the old man that was all about me, me, me. Do you remember that old man, those of you who are saved? Do you remember the struggle you still have today with that old man sometimes? You know, 1 John says something beautiful about that old man. 1 John chapter 2 says this in verse 15. It says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those three categories of things cover a host of sins now, don't they? They cover a host of sins. He says, is not of the Father, but is of the world. See the contrast? And he goes on to say, and the world is passing away. If you're putting your faith and trust in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, understand this, it's going to disappear. This old world that is hooked to those things is a goner. It will no longer be here. Where will that leave you? But he goes on to say, but let he who does the will of God abides forever. But he who does the will of God abides forever. What is that will of God? The will of God is that we should live a life of righteousness. We are set forth in this life to be glorification to God. We do that through a life of righteousness. It tells us in verse, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, it says that we shouldn't be ignorant. We should live different than the world, and we shouldn't be ignorant. You should be in the Word. You should be taking the Word and applying that Word to your life. Not only that, it says we should do good works. What is the example of Christ living within you? The things that you do with these hands. The things that you do with this mouth. The things that you do when you sit down, when it's inconvenient. You sit down with a friend that's going through a problem and you just listen. You just listen. When you take time out of your busy schedule to love somebody else. That's being Christ. And he also says in the 17th verse of Ephesians chapter 4, he says this. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord. What's the one thing you should do day in and day out if your life is a life of Christ? It should be a testimony. It should be a testimony of what Christ has done in your life and can do in the lives of those gathered around you. Do you truly love God? Do you love Him with all your heart? If you do, you will live to glorify Him. See, God's purpose in saving us had absolutely nothing to do with us. It had absolutely nothing to do with us. It had everything to do with Him. 
For you see, he saved us to glorify himself through us, just as he originally created us to be his glorification. The crowning jewel of his creation is you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is the last verse that says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Church, I ask you this this morning. Is your life new? Is the life that you live on a daily basis, is it a new life? Or are you still clinging to the life that was old, the old man? Are you still clinging to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life? Are those things still battling you? How do you overcome those? You overcome those by realizing you are in Jesus Christ. You're in Jesus Christ by the power of the Almighty God. And you're placed in Jesus Christ to be a glorification of Him in this world. I challenge you. Live your life for the glory of God. Pray with me. Most gracious Heavenly Father, this morning, Lord, we've opened Your Word. And we've looked at it together. And we have done it with one goal. And that goal is to change our life. We didn't come to spend an hour in this place to check it off the list to say that we've been. For if we leave the same as we came in, we've accomplished nothing and we've sinned against you. This morning, just as you have challenged my heart, I pray that you challenge the hearts of those gathered in this place to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. For eternity is dependent upon their decision about your son, Jesus Christ. For those that are not saved, I ask this morning that you stir their hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit. Draw them to you. Give them the faith to believe in what he did for them personally upon that cross. For those that are saved and realize their life hasn't been an example of your glory, this morning give them renewed spirit, renewed strength to glorify you each day. And then, Father, for those who are given this place that have loved ones or friends or neighbors that don't know your Son, Jesus Christ, this morning move their hearts to fall on their face before you and petition you to pray to you for their forgiveness and then be the feet and the hands of Jesus as the gospel is shared. All these things we ask in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'll ask the musicians to come. and The invitation goes like this. Maybe this morning you realize you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never come to have a personal relationship with Him. You're dependent upon church attendance or something that's gone on uh, in your life. Maybe something your mother or father did. Maybe you're dependent upon how active you've been in the church. That won't save you. The only thing that will save you is knowing Jesus Christ personally. This morning you come, I'll explain to you how that works. Maybe this morning you're a part of the church. But as you look in that mirror you realize, you know what? My life hadn't been a whole lot of glorification for God. This morning you come to the altar and pray. And you may say, Brother Roger, I can pray in this pew just as good as I can pray at the altar. Yes, and Jesus could have stayed in heaven with his Holy Father and left you to be your own too. But he chose to step out in front of everybody and be stripped naked and beaten, humiliated in front of everyone for you. If you can't walk from that pew to that altar to fall on your face and pray for him, You're right, your life isn't a glorification to God. What's wrong with the church today? We're too concerned about what the person sitting next to us is thinking than about what a holy God thinks about us. 
this morning. If your life doesn't look like it should, come. There's something special about humbling yourself before the Lord. You come. You ask for forgiveness of those sins. Maybe this morning you don't have a church home. We'd love to have you. We'd love to have you. I don't always preach this long. Sometimes it's two minutes shorter. But anyway, this morning I hope you'll do what God calls you to do. Stand with us as we sing this morning. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.